Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study this morning is The Nameless God. Do you know who that is? Who is the nameless God? The nameless God is, a, is the anonymous God, right? The unknown God. And uh, any idea, you might be having some ideas about who, who we might be talking about here today, but we want to look at an aspect of how God has revealed himself, particularly when it comes to his name, and this will help us to see the, the contrast to that uh, as we go along. Uh, the nameless God is the one that goes without a name, and there is such a God that exists, and we will see a little bit about that as well and the problems associated with that. Uh, which has to do with the Trinity, of course. Uh, but anyway, we'll, get a, we'll see that as we go along. Uh, the wise man asks a question in the book of Proverbs, a series of questions, uh, but this is the culmination of this question here. Proverbs 30 and verse 4. Who has ascended up into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? An important series of questions here, and it's a question that relates to a very important kind of knowledge, right? It's the true knowledge of, of God. The wise man here credits all these works, wonderful works of creation, these creative acts, to how many individuals? Two, specifically identified by their relationship to each other, right? A father and... A son, and the question is, do you really know the God who is responsible for all this creation? Do you know him? Do you know his son? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If you can tell. Now the question here is, can you tell what his name is and what his son's name is? Now the thing to note here too is, this is not just talking about information and detail. This is not just talking about whether you know the actual name, which we will see. But the actual name actually leads to something. Some people get very caught up and very uh, enamored and, and uh, almost obsessed with the name of God and how to pronounce it properly. You might be familiar uh, with some people like that. Maybe you think that way yourself. That's not the point and object of the verse. The name, having the correct name is important, is, not, is more important than just the sound that is made, as we shall see. The correct name is to lead to the correct identity. That's what's being asked here. Do you know the true identity of the creator and of his son? A personal knowledge of God is what's implied here by knowing his name. And uh, that is really the, the point of the question. In the Hebrew, to know someone's name signifies a personal connection and a relationship. And vice versa, when God knows someone by name, as we shall see, uh, when we go along as well. So, there is a difference between knowing the name and actually knowing the owner of the name. You might know the name only, but do you know the owner of that name? Do you have a connection? Do you have a relationship on a personal level? This is what Jesus was referring to in John 17, 3. We mentioned this verse last night. He says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Again, Christ now identifies what eternal life is. It's to know how many individuals? Two. The only true God, that's the Father, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, that's the Son. This living, vibrant relationship is more than just an acquaintance with what God's name sounds like when you say it with your mouth. This personal knowledge. This is what knowing God's name is all about. And I say this because there are some people who have misunderstood that. And in God revealing his name, he is trying to reveal something about this personal connection with him. So keep this point in mind. Eternal life is to know the Father and his Son, to have this personal connection and acquaintance with them. And in order to know the Father and the Son, this was what Christ's mission was all about. And this is how he expresses it. And notice the link here with the name. In John 17, 6, Jesus says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy words. <coughs> so Christ's mission was to 
bring to us eternal life, to bring to us a knowledge of God. And he says that his job was to manifest the Father's name. He says, I have done so. I have manifested thy name. I have revealed who you are. I have revealed your identity, your character, so that they might have eternal life, which is to know you, the one whom I have revealed, and to know Jesus Christ whom you have sent, which is, this, which is the Son through whom that is revealed. This is what revealing the name means. You with me? It's a lot more than just simply someone's name that we call, you know, like, like Neil or Lona. It's a lot more than just the sound we make to get a particular person's attention. It's actually to signify one individual identity in a gathering in a room. If I call out Luke, you know, only one person should look. I'll get his attention. The one named that way. This individual, this identity, this character, this person is what that name is all about. It's not just the sound. You with me? So God's name is about knowing the identity of the creator and maker of the universe personally. Not just how do we sound his name. This is what Jesus meant. Because if you look at the life of Christ, you will find that Jesus rarely spoke the name of the Father. You realize that? And yet he says, I have what? Manifested thy name. So you understand what he means. He revealed something about the character, the identity, and the nature of his father. This is what revealing or manifesting that name is all about. And so the most common uh, term that Jesus used to refer to God was as father. The most common one in the New Testament. That's manifesting his name, his identity, who he is. Now, the name is important, and we'll look at the name as well. But uh, in revealing the name of God, and revealing the identity and character of God, the chief attribute that we learn from Christ and, and from the apostles about God's, God is that God is? What's the chief attribute you would describe God as? God is love. God is love, thank you, all right. The apostle uh, summarized that for us very well, 1 John 4, 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Interesting verse to ponder. Obviously, John learned this from Christ. This is what Christ meant when he says, I have manifested thy name. They came to know that this God of the universe, the Father of Christ, who has a name, which we will examine shortly, his nature, character, is summarized with this attribute, with this love. And the interesting thing here is this. To... It says, he that loveth not, knoweth not God. In other words, to know God is to what? To love God. So when Jesus says eternal life is to know thee, the only true God, what's he referring to? To love him. And to love someone, you have to understand the identity or know the identity of the object of that love. You have to have a certain relationship, a certain connection. You with me? This is what eternal life is all about. So he that loveth not, knoweth not God. Because God is love. So knowing God's name is knowing his character, knowing his identity, and understanding what Christ revealed about him, and loving him because you see that he is a God of love. He is love. As it says here, God is love. So you may know, you, you may know about God, but it doesn't necessarily mean you know God. Is that right? It's possible to know all the technical information about God and maybe even his name and how to pronounce it and so on and so forth and still fail to truly, personally know God because knowing him is loving him. So this is the important component. Uh, now this, this point here, sadly, is misunderstood in a number of ways. We're going to look at the name issue in, in a little while. But there's a popular argument today when it comes to God's love that is actually used to promote the idea that God is a trinity. I'm not sure if you've heard of it or not. But uh, I have a video clip that will play. I'll make sure that it works here. And uh, to illustrate that. Uh, now the video clip is from, uh, well, let me put the next slide here. It's from Pastor Doug B Batchelor. And the reason I'm playing this clip is because it is representative of an argument that is commonly used and repeated to try and promote the idea that God is a trinity based on the fact that God is love and how that is used. So I just want to clarify, when I put his clip here, it's not about him personally. I'm dealing with the argument or the, the, the position that he is presenting. And we want to examine it because you hear it a lot. People repeat it a lot. And we need to critically examine it. Does it hold water or not? Is this, is this what Christ came to reveal about 
the character of God being love. Now, now let's play this. Now, one of the, for me, I, this is, I think, a slam dunk truth. The idea that Jesus was created means that at some point, a person believes that uh, God the Father, perhaps God the Father with the Spirit, but these people also don't believe the Spirit is God, did not exist, which would mean that at some point, way back, that God the Father existed all by himself, and there was no other intelligent being. Now, the Bible tells us that the supreme definition of God is God is love. By its very nature, love must be expressed in order to be love. So for you to say that there was a time when God existed and Jesus did not exist, God could not be love unless it was expressed. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, something we'll talk about another uh, question, um, has always existed. And that's why God is love. There's always been this perfect love between the members, the persons of the Trinity. Okay. This is the slam dunk argument, right? According to him. Uh, I want you to think about what you heard. Now, the, the common uh, misrepresentation about what we're saying is that we say that uh, Christ is created. That's not the case. Christ is begotten and there is a vast difference. But uh, the point that he's making here is what you heard. Love must be expressed in order for it to be love. So if God is love, it means there had to be someone else there to express that love too. God could not be love unless it was expressed. That's the argument. Make sense? Is it true? I want you to think. Okay, relational. Because this is, this is, a, ma this is a major, a key pillar when it comes to the argument of that God had to be more than one. As he said there in the end, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they had to all exist together at the same time from the beginning. One cannot precede the other because that's how God, God is love. He had to have all these, uh, and he had to have an expression of that love. Now this argument is faulty on a number of levels. It confuses the expression of love with the very nature of love itself. You with me? It says that, Love is only present when it is expressed. I want you to think about it this way. A selfish person commits selfish acts. These selfish acts are expressions of selfishness. Now, is, this, is the person selfish before he commits selfish acts or expresses that selfishness? Of course. He doesn't become selfish when he expresses selfishness. What he's expressing is a, is a manifestation of what's within. You with me? Yes. Now I want to illustrate this argument a little bit. Uh, let's, let's get rid of that and go back to our slides. Uh, this way. I want you to think this way. Uh, does anyone know what this is a picture of? This is a western brown snake in Australia. You probably don't recognize it because you don't have it here. Uh, we, we have a number of poisonous creatures in Australia, which is the terror of many tourists and visitors. Uh, among them, yeah, we'll, we'll keep them, no problem. Among them is the brown snake. This is a very poisonous snake. I want you to think carefully now, based on the argument we heard. Does this, is this snake poisonous only because it bites people? Or... Is it poisonous before it bites people? This particular snake actually caused someone's death. Australian killed after deadly brown snake bite. That's the expression of the poison. But the argument we just heard that poison must be expressed in order for it to be poison. I have news for you. This snake is poisonous long before it's expressed. And you don't want to find out the hard way. It would be actually very silly and very naive for me to say, well, you know, that snake hasn't bitten anyone yet. It's not poisonous. It's like saying, God does not have anyone else to love, therefore he is not love. You see the problem now? So God's love, brothers and sisters, is his very nature. When you say that God's love requires the presence of someone else for him to love, it actually means that God's love is based on someone or something external to him. You with me? So if you remove that someone or something, God all of a sudden is no longer 
love and you have a problem. That's the argument. So if you put a snake on an island all by itself and no one for it to bite, that snake does not transform into a non-poisonous snake. It's still a poisonous snake. So the expression should not be confused with the very nature of the thing. Now this is in the scriptures actually, where God revealed his name to Moses. Notice carefully, because we're talking about the name of God here. Exodus 34 verses 5 to 7. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, yes, with Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now this is interesting. Here is God proclaiming his name, and what he proclaims is his very nature, his characteristics. This is what God's name really means, more so than just what sound is made as far as calling God's name. And it goes on, verse 6, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. You familiar with this verse? Beautiful description of God. Now here's the thing. Based on the argument we just heard earlier, part of God's nature is that He is forgiving, correct? Then that means and proves that there must have been sin in existence all along in order for God to be forgiving. What do you think? Because unexpressed forgiveness is not forgiveness. You remember the argument? Unexpressed love is not love. In order for love to be love, it has to be expressed. You, you see the point? It becomes problematic. All the attributes and characters of God, if you think this way, will require the presence of all these other aspects in order to express them. So to say that God is love proves that the Father and Son did not precede each other, they always existed, also means that if God is forgiving and merciful, then sin must have existed as long as God and, could not, and God could not precede sin. You see, when sin came in, God did not become forgiving. But now was an opportunity for God to express the forgiveness which is part of His nature. Just like when God had a son, that was an expression of the love which is His nature. He did not become loving. Another example, when God created Adam in His image, before the creation of Eve, was Adam a loving being? Or did Adam only become a loving being after Eve was made? You with me? He was loving, but now God made him Eve, and now he could express and lavish his love on someone. So that argument really collapses on its head. And yet it is a very common argument. That's why there are no verses to support that argument. And the verse that is used that God is love is talking about the nature of God, not the expression of God's love. And to know God is to love Him. That's really the key point when it comes to that verse. So, these are, uh, this is a popular argument. These are some of the, the issues with it. Now, God's name was actually revealed in the scriptures in a number of ways. Notice how earlier He revealed His name to Moses. Yes, there's a comment here. Can you just go back and just repeat all that about Yeah, it's just, what we're saying is God, God is forgiving by nature, but the argument is if God is love, He had to have someone to love, otherwise He's not love. Therefore, if God is forgiving, then sin had to exist all along in order to prove that God is forgiving. Otherwise, uh, if it only existed later, then God wasn't really forgiving before it existed. Are you talking of when Satan fell from heaven? Satan or us or, or the presence of sin which, is, which revealed an aspect of God's nature. It did not mean that God acquired something that he did not have before. It's just the, the argument simply confuses the expression of God's character with the presence of the characteristic itself. It confuses the two. It says only when something is expressed does it exist. That is not the case. As we saw, with a selfish person is already selfish before he commits any selfish acts or before he expresses that selfishness. As a matter of fact, he can hide and mask that selfishness and not express it very well, and yet still he is selfish. So the expression of something is not what makes it uh, real or brings it about, it just simply shows what is already there. 
The Bible talks about Christ as the Son of God's love. It's in, in Colossians, it talks about being transported in the, into the Son, the kingdom of the Son of His love. God's Son was the very first thing that really occurred in the universe, and we'll see. Uh, it was the expression of this nature of this loving God. God is love. And he demonstrated and expressed that love and that the first thing that happened is that he had a son. And he is the son of his love. God did not become loving when he had a son. God was a loving God and that's why he had a son. In the same way, you know, God did not uh, only begin to love us when he gave his son. It's because God loved us that he expressed that love in giving the son. So are you with me? It's, it's, not, it's not really a, a strong argument whatsoever. It's actually a, a, a very poor argument to try and prove the Trinity. But that's what you really end up resorting to. God had expressed his name to Moses earlier, as we saw. Exodus 6.3, he says, And I appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. So here is God's name. Jehovah, the Hebrew is Yahweh. In English, it is Jehovah. This is the actual name of God, but God's name is really about who this person is as far as his character, as far as his nature, not just what sound is being made. So what that means is God revealed his identity and his character to these individuals, Abraham and Jacob, before actually revealing the actual sound of his name. You with me? So they knew God, even though they did not know the sound of his name just yet. And so when Jesus talks about revealing God's name or manifesting God's name, it's God's character. And what we see here is this principle of a developing revelation. God reveals things and then he adds and expands to that, but never contradicts that. That's an important point to also keep in mind. The opposite of this is also true. You know, with the, with the revelation of, of a character and a name, the inverse or the opposite is also important to keep in mind that an unrevealed name signifies someone who is not knowable. You with me? God revealed his name, his character, his identity so that we might know him, so that we might love him because that is eternal life. The inverse is an unrevealed name is an unrevealed character, an identity, an unknowable person, a mystery. That's why the title of our study this morning is The Nameless God. Because there is such a God who is nameless, who is worshipped and credited with a lot of things. And we want to see that as well, this anonymous God. Now Jehovah, when it talks about Jehovah here, who is Jehovah? It appears in the scripture thousands of times in the Old Testament. And uh, Here's another description to help us understand who this might be. Psalm 83, 18. That men may know that thou whose name alone is Jehovah are the most high over all the earth. Jehovah is the most high over all the earth. How many most highs can there be? There is one. The most high is a position that is telling you one person occupies this most high position. Or the highest, right? The top. The head. That's what it's talking about. Who is this only one Jehovah? God the Father. This is the name of God the Father. This is what it would sound like if you were to say it in English. The Hebrew is Yahweh. And we know that it is uh, a revelation of the character, nature, and identity of the holder of that name or the owner of that name. Now, how do we know that this is God the Father? If you remember talking about the Most High, let's look at uh, Isaiah 14, 14. Lucifer had said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like... The Most High. Who did Lucifer want to be like? Like God the Father. So Lucifer knew who the Most High was, right? He was in heaven. He worshipped God at one point. He was a loyal angel. He was made by God, of course. And he wanted to be like the Most High. Not in character. Not uh, to be, uh, you know, to occupy what God would give and bestow. But he wanted to gain what God had. As in, or what God, what he felt God was obtained. He wanted the worship. He wanted to be looked up to. It was a selfish desire in wanting to be like God. What he could get out of it. Not what he could give to the creatures uh, being in that position. So, 
Satan knew that, and we see that Satan and his angels also knew the identity of Christ as well. This is the story of, of the man who had devils. Luke 8, verse 27. And when he went forth to land, this is Jesus, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils a long, long time and wear, not, wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God, most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. Who was speaking through this man? He was full of devils, right? Demons. These are Satan's angels. And they identified, they knew the identity of Christ. He was, thou son of God, most high. So they knew the father, and they knew that right there in front of them was Jesus, the son of the most high God. And the Bible says the name of the most high is Jehovah. That's why we're saying it's God the Father. I'm just using the scripture to reveal that for us. So the most high is God the Father. He's the one who has a son by the name of Jesus. And Jesus, as the son of the most high God, came to reveal to us the Father's name and character and identity so that we might know him and love him. And that's what eternal life is all about. See how it all fits together? Beautiful, right? That's what the name of God is this. I want us to keep this point in mind that Jehovah is the proper name of God the Father. Because the wise man asked, if we knew two names, right? He says, what is his name and what is his son's name? We already found his name. That's the father's name is Jehovah. What about the son's name? Why did Satan want to be like the Most High? I want us to think about that a little bit. Why did Satan want to be like the Most High, God the Father? Usually we don't think of it as God the Father, I realize. But I want you to think about it this way. What gave Satan the idea that such a thing was even possible, to be like the Most High. You know why? Because there was someone who was like the Most High. And Lucifer wanted to be like the Most High in like manner. You know who we're talking about? It's Christ. So Christ was right there in the equation. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews about Christ, Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ was the express image of the Father's person. He was in all the brightness of his majesty and glory. As Satan desired that, he desired to also be like the Most High. And this is why this problem of sin began. Now, Christ being like the Most High, there was a, how that came about is because Christ was the Son of God. It's the Sonship of Christ that makes Him like His Father. Because Christ has by inheritance all these attributes, the nature, the character, and He is the express image of the Father's person. Very much like all the children that are born to their parents, have a certain resemblance to their parents, right? There was a time when, uh, you know, you, when you were leaving the hospital, you had to make sure you got the right child uh, because they put all the kids in the nursery together. Well, one way you can tell if the child belongs to you, I know we have tests now, but you look at the resemblance, you know, does this child look the, like the parent? We're all children to our parents. We carry some resemblance to our parents. The great original of that is the son being begotten in the express image of the father's person. That's why when God set up this system uh, in the world, he made the rule of creation is that everything reproduces after its kind. And so an apple tree will produce seeds. When you plant the seed, you know what you will get before you get it. You don't have to wait for an expression of it to prove that it now becomes an apple tree. You with me? That's back to the argument that we looked at earlier. When you have that seed in the ground, you put it in, you have the ability to predict what kind of tree will come out. Isn't that amazing? Because God says they reproduce after their kind. The apple tree doesn't become an apple tree when you have an apple on the tree. And all before that time, it was an unknown. No, that's not the case. It's always an apple tree. But at one point, it does express the fruit, and that's when you harvest it and you can enjoy it. Same thing with God's love. God is love in his very being, and he has expressed that to us. So Christ is the fullness of that. And God also says 
uh, you know, it says at the end here, uh, no, not at the end, sorry. Christ is being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. And God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Interesting, Christ is the express image of the Father's glory, and God says he does not give his glory to another. Which tells you that the Christ being the express image of God's glory is not something that was given to him, it's something that he has by inheritance, by nature. Because of who he is and his relation to God. And God says he will not give his glory to false gods or false worship, as it says here. Only the Son is the brightness of the Father's glory. Satan desired to have God's glory because he saw that the Son had it. But Satan was a created being. He could never be what the Son was. Through any act or through any accomplishment or through any effort. And the war started in heaven over this particular issue. And that same issue is the root of the problem that exists today still. With the Trinity, believe it or not. The Trinity is still an attempt of Satan to gain what he wanted in heaven. You realize that? And we will see how that is accomplished. So, Christ being the Son of God is what establishes the equality of Christ. Philippians 2.6 says, Who being the form, in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Is Christ equal to God the Father? The answer is yes. And that's why Christ could not and never was or is ever said to be in the scriptures a created being. As, as uh, Pastor Doug was saying earlier, you know, we say Christ is a created being. No, we don't because the Bible doesn't say that. Lucifer was a created being. Christ was begotten. And that birth is what equates him with the Father. He has the Father's nature. Yes. How can he be equal when he says, my Father is Okay, good question. How can he be equal when he says, my father is greater than I? The father is the source of the son. That's what the son means. The father is greater in that everything that the son is, and we'll see in the next verse, comes from the father. The equality is that Christ has the same nature as his father. It's an equality of possessing the same nature, the same attributes, and that is the divine nature. So Christ, God is... The source of the Son is not the other way around. But what the Son inherited is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's what it's talking about. So it's an equality in that sense of possessing that nature, not an equality of same age or that uh, he has no source like the Father. So that's, that's an important point to, uh, to keep in mind. This is also expressed in John 1 and verse 1. Very popular verse that people like to quote to try and prove the Trinity. What can we learn from this verse? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we're presented with the Son of God being just like God. He's referred to as God, correct? And people say, there it is, conclusive evidence. And then uh, that, that proves the Trinity. But think about the words that are being used in this verse. What is the title given here to Christ? This is talking about Christ, of course. He's referred to as the Word. Why is he referred to as the Word? What is the nature of our words? Our words are an expression of our thoughts, or at least they should be, right? You know, you think and then you speak what you're thinking. Sometimes we speak before thinking, not advisable, right? We speak too soon and too quickly. But ideally and generally, what you say is an expression of your thought. Words don't just exist on their own. Words have a source, correct? So Christ being referred to as the word straight away puts the idea in your mind that this word came from somewhere. It came from someone. It has a source. It doesn't just exist all by itself all alone. And it actually tells you when that occurred, it was in the beginning. Now people have suggested the novel idea that this is a beginning without beginning because they want to make Christ have no beginning. You heard of that? And so they will quote this verse and say, see Christ is God and he always was there, he has no beginning. When the verse actually says, in the beginning was the word. It's telling you when the word was, it was in the beginning. We have a very similar verse in the beginning of Genesis, where it says again, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There is a specific point where God created. There is a specific point where the word was. And actually in the book of Proverbs, there is a, a parallel verse to John 1.1 where it says, The Lord possessed me 
in the beginning of his way. That's Proverbs 8 and verse 22. That's the word speaking. That's the wisdom of God speaking. That's Christ speaking. And this is what John is referring to. So this verse is telling us that what makes the word God is that he was in the beginning as when God had his son. And when God had his son, he was an expression of his thought. He was an expression of his love. He's called the word of God. Because he is the son of God, he has and possesses the very nature of his father, the God nature. So he was with God and he was God. Make sense? That's what John 1, 1 is talking about. And he has God's name, of course. So, how would you describe the, the word that is the expression of God's thought? It's just like God. There is a Hebrew word uh, that actually, a Hebrew name that actually expresses that. The Hebrew name is Michael. Do you know what the name Michael means? Just like God. One who is like God. The one who is like God was his son. The one who is the express image of his person. Anyway, this is not a study about Michael. This is just a side note to, to keep in mind. Uh, these are the very things that Satan desired to get and obtain. He wasn't content with being Lucifer. What does Lucifer mean? The light bearer. He would bear God's light. He would be a means of revealing it. He wasn't content with being that. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be Michael, one who is like God. It's interesting when you put the names there and the meanings, it kind of paints the picture a little bit clearer. And Michael, of course, Christ was the only one who was the express image of the Father's person. So uh, this is a very clear proof and demonstration of the divine status of the Son of God. To prove the divinity of the Son, you don't have to go to all the actions and, and creative acts and abilities that he possesses. All you have to do is look at his relationship to the Father. That's the biggest proof for his divinity. Much like the proof for your, humani your, your humanity or what race you belong to is, and as in the human race, that's what I'm talking about, not the races in different races. Uh, you belong to the category of humans because your parents are human and you are a child of your parents. It's not, like, it's not because you look like one and talk like one and act like one. We must conclude that you are one. All we have to do is look at your parents, right? If you were born to human parents, you are human straight away. Long before you act like a human, you might be a little baby crying and, and not uh, doing much else. You're still a human being. Christ's divinity, brothers and sisters, is based on his relationship to the Father. His sonship is the greatest proof of that. And as the Son of God, he also carries the Father's name. Exodus 23. 20 and 21. Behold, speaking to Moses here, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Who is this angel or messenger that has God's name in him? It's Christ. And what is God's name that was in him? What's the name of the Most High? Jehovah, right? And all the, all the character and attributes that, that are associated with that name. The Father says, my name, Jehovah, is in this angel, this messenger that is leading you. Beware of him and obey his voice. He can forgive sins. Just like when he declared to Moses his name on the mountain, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's a divine attribute. Christ has the Father's name. The next verse spells it out even clearer. He goes on to say, But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. So obeying his voice is really all that the Father speaks. His voice is what the Father speaks. That's why he's appropriately called the Word of God. The source is the Father. Christ is the expression. The Father's name is in the Son. So, this is why when Christ was on earth, he came to manifest the Father's name, as he says it, and his method of manifesting the Father's name is in his own life, his own character. 
He wasn't just telling people, let, sit down and let me tell you about God or let me tell you his name so you can learn how to pronounce it. He manifested his name in his life. That's why you could say, he that has seen me has seen the Father. And this is what he says in John 5, 43. I am come in my Father's name and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. He was speaking to the unbelieving Jews. Christ came in his Father's name. He carried his Father's name. The Father dwelt in him. He was the expression of God's thought. That's what revealing that name means. Uh, the believer will receive that as well. Uh, before we read this verse, I want you to read ahead here. Uh, when Jesus spoke, the Bible says he did not speak of himself. The Father that dwelt in him, he did the works. He expressed everything that the Father desired to reveal. This is why one of Christ's names, when he came to earth especially, was Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. God the Father with us in His Son. So the, the means whereby God, the God of heaven, the Most High, is with His people on earth, is He sent His Son, the Word of God. His Son is the express image. His Son carries the Father's name and character and attributes. And that's how the Father is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. The only one who could do that is the one who was like God. And Jesus' name on earth, and uh, you know, we refer to him as Jesus. The Hebrew, of course, is, is Yeshua, of uh, what we use in English, the common uh, name for Jesus, is from the Hebrew Yeshua. What does that mean? Anyone know what that means? Joshua. Okay, Joshua is, is, a, is a, another English form of it. Uh, what's the meaning of the word? Savior. Savior. Specifically, the salvation of Yahweh, or of Jehovah. Or Jehovah saves. The name Jesus or Yeshua means the salvation of God. You see, it's not just the sound. It's actually a very real and practical meaning. God saves us in His Son, by His Son and through His Son. And that's what God wants us to know. He wants us to know His name. Interestingly enough, the 144,000 in the book of Revelation have the Father's name written where? In their foreheads. Now, that's not a literal writing. You'll hopefully understand now what it means. They have a comprehension and an understanding of the identity of the God they worship. How did the Father's name get in their foreheads? The only one who carries God's name and reveals it is His Son. So His Son must be somewhere there for the Father's name to be in their foreheads. You with me? When, this, when you receive the Son, when you have the life of the Son, you become connected with God the Father. You have the Father's name in your forehead because the Son carries the Father's name. You see the picture? And so the believer actually is expressed to have that. In Revelation 3 and verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. No more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. How many names are written on the overcomer? According to this verse. Three names, right? Jesus says the name of my God. And then he says the name of the city of my God. And... Jesus' new name. Interesting, that's, that's not a trinity there, right? That's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what you might expect if you believe that, you know, in the trinity. You say, well, the three names, well, it has to be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, that's, it's not. The first name is the name of the Father, and he's referred to as the God of Jesus, right? Yes. Jesus says, my God. Yes. This is an acknowledgement that everything that Christ is comes from the Father. The Father is the source. Christ is the Word of God. First name he writes is the name of his God, the name of the city, and his new name. Now, I don't know what that new name is, but there's one way to find out, right? It's to be there. It's to be an overcomer. That's the promise for the overcomer. So these people know the Father and the Son personally, brothers and sisters. They don't just know about them. And they know about the Father and the Son because they possess the Spirit of the Son. The Spirit is the presence of the Father and the Son, not someone else. That's what Jesus meant when he told his disciples, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That's how we bear God's name. That's how we have God's name. By, by 
receiving the only one who is God with us. That's Emmanuel, not anyone else. The spirit that we receive cannot be anyone other than Emmanuel. Because it, whoever it is brings us God's name. And only Christ carries God's name. He's the express image of the Father's person. And the only way we can carry or bear God's name or have and receive God's name is to have Christ. You with me? It's all about Christ. If it's anyone else, it's a problem. Now, the interesting thing, I want to look at another clip here. Because there is a teaching uh, that the Spirit is not the Spirit of Christ. It's someone else. In the Trinity, we are told that the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. It's another individual called God the Holy Spirit. And that's the, the title, a term that's used uh, to title him. That's not really a name. And that name is never the Father. It's not even a name. It's a title. It's, it's a title that's used often, that's often thought as, as the name because it's so often used. And you're right, it's not even in the scriptures. There's no such thing as God the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. But I want us to note the difference here as things start to diverge. When you look at the name and the only one who really carries it and bears it, Emmanuel, and that's how we receive it when we receive Christ, the devil wants to displace that and confuse that by introducing erroneous ideas and theology. Uh, let's look at this next clip and see what we can learn. Now, if the Holy Spirit was really just the spirit of Jesus, Jesus would say, I'm leaving, but I will, through my spirit, do this. But it gives them separate individuality. So the idea is that the Holy Spirit is not Jesus. If the Holy Spirit was Jesus, Jesus would say, I would do this and I would do that. And Jesus actually does say that. But uh, this concept that the Spirit is not the Spirit of Christ is actually the opposite of what the Scripture reveals. Now, if we go to, uh, let's close this and go to a verse here that's uh, familiar to you, but I want us to compare things against the Scripture. Galatians 4, 6, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit of His Son is the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit that we receive is the Spirit of Christ, not someone else. And the reason why it sounds like someone else when Jesus was speaking in John 16, because that's the go-to passage that people use, is because Jesus there, from 14 to 16 really, Jesus was there speaking in parables. It's the parable of the Comforter. I think we did this study here once in one of the camps uh, a few years ago. Uh, you might have been here for that. If not, we have it online on a DVD. The parable of the Comforter, why Jesus spoke the way he did in John 14 to 16 when it comes to the Comforter, it does sound like someone else. But it also is, in the middle of those passages, Jesus clearly identified who was coming. He said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Son. That's who the Father sends into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we are told that is, it is the Spirit of the Son. The Trinity Doctrine says it is not the Spirit of Jesus. It has to be someone else. What Uh, I know, I know, that's, that's why we're using it, because it's... I'm sure there are some creative answers, uh, trying to say, well, this is a little bit different to the Holy Spirit, or this is someone else, uh, but there is one Spirit in the Scriptures. It's the Spirit of God, which the Son possesses and has, because it's been given to Him, He inherited all things. That's who we receive, it's Emmanuel. That's how God, the Father, is with us. A good name to summarize this is Emmanuel. Right? God with us. That's the whole point. Where the Father becomes our Father. Christ's Father becomes our Father. Uh, failure to realize that, that the Spirit is the very life of the Son leads to severe problems, which we will illustrate in a minute. But I want us to think about the situation here before I go to this, uh, to this illustration. The idea of the Trinity teaches that there are three persons who make up God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We found that the Father revealed Himself, and He has a name. His name is Jehovah or Yahweh. We found that the Son has revealed Himself clearly with a name. There is an identity there. And it's not the Father, it's the Son. Because we need to know the Father and Son. And the Son's name was Michael before the Incarnation. We know Him more commonly today as Jesus, which is the English of Yeshua in Hebrew. There is a name there. What about God the Holy Spirit? 
What is the name of God the Holy Spirit? <laughs> that's not the, that's the answer you would give because I know why you're saying that. But in the Bible, for those who believe that God is a trinity, this is a good question to ask them. What is the name of God the Holy Spirit? Someone say, oh, God the Holy Spirit. That's not a name. That's a title. Holy Spirit is not a name. Holy Spirit is a title to describe what kind of spirit it is. There is an unclean spirit. There is an evil spirit. And there is also a Holy Spirit called the Holy Spirit of God. But it simply is a description of what kind of spirit it is. It is not a name. So what is the name of God the Holy Spirit? There is no name in the Bible. That's why we said the title of the study is The Nameless God. And, and you know why there is no name in the Bible? Because there is no one there to reveal a name of. There is no other person or individual besides the Father and the Son in that category. That argument is very telling. And this is why it's important for us to utilize the name of God because it actually proves individuality and identity. The Father has a name. The Son has a name. Why does the Spirit have no name? Because it actually belongs to the Father and Son. You don't need another name of another someone. Now it's interesting, Sister Lona said the, the name she, she suggested, and there's a reason for that, is because there is someone who wants to receive worship like the Father and the Son. So what he has done is he has separated the Spirit from God and made it into a different person. And this different person all of a sudden gets credit that belongs to the Father and Son. I want to illustrate this problem very practically because this affects people's perception and people's uh, experience as a result. I, I want to play this clip. I want you to think carefully about what you're hearing and, uh, and see if you catch that. Um, you've got God the Father so loving the world that He sends God the, spot, uh, the Son. And then we are saved and empowered through God the Spirit and guided through God the Spirit. Okay. We are saved and empowered and guided by God the Spirit. So God the Father loved us. God the Son came and died for us. But how we are saved and guided is by God the Holy Spirit. Do you see a problem here? It's not the Son. It's not the Father. It's someone else. So now salvation is credited to this nameless someone who goes by the title of God the Spirit. Someone other than the Son of God. Do you see a problem? This is a major problem. This is a logical result of the idea that God is a trinity. It leads to this. And so in your mind, in your understanding, you have this appreciation for God the Father and, and the Son, and we know who that is, and also someone who you believe is saving you and actually guiding you and helping you to make it to heaven. You are stealing from Christ. And you're giving all that credit to someone else. That's an insult to Christ. You realize that? Now, I'm not saying people do that intentionally and they're evil and all this stuff. This is a logical result of an error. This is a manifestation of the error. This is not a condemnation of the poor people who do not maybe realize the full ramification of that. So don't, don't misunderstand what we're saying. We're not putting clips here and, and, and you know, Doug... Uh, bachelor here to try and condemn him and make him look bad. We're looking at the position and the manifestation of what it means practically. This is what ends up happening in people's minds as a result of this idea of believing in this nameless God. Now we're giving him credit for salvation. That's a very, very sad and serious tragedy. That's what the Trinity does. Let me close that. I think we have a couple more before we, before we go on. Uh, that's why they call it a mystery, correct. Admission of it being a mystery is, is a self-contradiction while insisting that it has to be defined a certain way. In Acts 9.15, notice what we're told here. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Quiz, do you know what this verse, who this verse is talking about? Paul, well done, thank you. Christ was here speaking to Ananias that he commanded to go and pray for Paul so that Paul's eyes would be open. One of the things that is uh, described here is that Paul would do what? Would bear my name before the Gentiles. That's the name of Christ. 
One of the things that the Apostle Paul did, and the apostles and the believers, but it's spelled out here, and we want to uh, look at that, is bearing the name of Christ before the Gentiles. You see, Jesus came from heaven. He says, I have manifested thy name to the people which you gave me. That's the name of the Father. He manifested, he revealed it, the Father's character. And so that the disciples can receive Christ, and receiving Christ, they receive that name. And now the Apostle Paul is said to be called to declare or to bear the name of Christ before the Gentiles. That's the name we declare, brothers and sisters. That's, that's the name we preach. We preach the identity and the truth about the Son of God. Not a nameless God. Not someone who does not have a name or an identity. And once you start, we start attributing things to Him. Declaring or bearing the name of Christ before the Gentiles is to preach Christ. It's not just to tell people how to pronounce His name, okay? That's, that's, that's very shallow. That's a very shallow person. It's not telling people, look, this is how you need to say it in Hebrew and make sure you pronounce it right. This, this is not what, uh, you know, the apostleship was about. Now, if you want to do that, great. I'm not trying to condemn people who do that, but some people have majored on this issue and may have made it a salvational thing that if you do not pronounce the name of Christ in Hebrew correctly, then woe unto you. God does not hear your prayers. You might be familiar with the argument. A lot of people who are into the, the Hebrew roots and the Hebrew names. They, they believe very strongly about that. And they use some of these verses that we looked at here today. Well, we saw the true meaning of these verses and what is really intended. It is about us receiving the name of God, the character of God, knowing who He is. Loving Him is knowing Him. And the only way that's possible is not by learning pronunciation. It's by receiving the Spirit of His Son. That's what it means. Because guess what? You might pronounce the name correctly. That's debatable, but you might pronounce the name correctly. That does not mean you're saved. God is more interested in changing our hearts, not teaching us pronunciation. So let's focus on where the focus really is. That's what revealing God's name is. And this is why it is very telling that there is no name revealed about someone who goes by the title of God, the Holy Spirit. That's a major problem. That's why we're examining that today. What does that name deal with as well. Let's look at this verse, Acts 3.16. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect, sorry, hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Here's another quiz. You know which story this is referring to? The, the, the cripple who was healed at the gate of the temple. Who didn't, who wanted money from Peter, and Peter says, I don't have money, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And notice how Peter expresses this. He says, His name, the name of Christ, through faith in his name, that's what made this man strong. He credits the name of Christ, and he says, The name of Christ, he equates that with faith in his name. So the name means, and the name of Christ, and having the name of Christ means faith in his name what that name signifies and carries. So it's a lot deeper than simply pronunciation. You with me? Faith, having the name, the correct name, is having faith in the name. You know the identity of Christ. You know that He is the representative. He is the Son of God, the Word of God. That's how you can be connected with God, Emmanuel. So if I were to ask you a question this way, <laughs> what is the name of the Spirit that we receive? Biblically, the name is? Emmanuel, right? It's Emmanuel. The spirit we receive that makes God the Father, our Father, is Emmanuel. There's only one person who goes by that name. It's Christ. So it's the spirit of Christ. It's the spirit of His Son. That's if, uh, if you are asked a question back, right? So if you ask the person, you know, what is the name of God, the Holy Spirit, show me a verse, they won't be able to answer they might ask the question back to you. So what is his name? You tell me. So, well, the Spirit has a name, and the name of the Spirit is Emmanuel. And this is what we're looking at here. It's Christ. It's none other than Christ. So today, this idea that God is a trinity, which is the most common concept that exists among Christianity, sadly, about who God is. And God is worshipped as a trinity, a three-person God. Totally destroys this revelation that we're seeing by introducing this anonymous being equating Him with the Father and the Son to receive worship, praise, and credit for our salvation, which only belongs to the Father and Son. It's a major problem. The nameless God is the anonymous God, the unknown God. And some people say, you know, uh, 
I heard all kinds of explanations over the years. Uh, someone suggested, well, you know, the Holy Spirit, he, he is so humble, he doesn't talk about himself. He just reveals Christ. You heard that? And some people even said he is, uh, he is the shy member of the Godhead. The implication straight away, if you pick it, is it's like the Father and the Son are not as humble, right? You with me? They're supposed to be co-equal, all of them, all three. And people say, well, the Holy Spirit, you know, he likes to stay in the background. He doesn't want to talk about himself. Well, you just made the Father and the Son a bit more selfish in your effort to prove this idea. You with me? It's, it's, it's riddled with nonsense. And I say this not to insult people. The idea was a masterpiece of Satan. It's full of contradictions that contradict the scripture. That if you just spend a little bit of time thinking about what you're hearing, you'll be horrified. That's why we're putting some of these clips where salvation credit is taken from Christ and given to someone else. We don't even know this name of this someone. And this someone is supposed to take us to heaven. Christ died for us. He rose. He accomplished the defeat of sin. And we give the credit to someone else. That's the disaster of the Trinity. Uh, here is how it's described. Uh, let's put this on as well. Um, the word Trinity is just a Latin word, tri-entity. It means three entities, like a tricycle. That's three wheels. It's talking about the three entities of God. So the three entities of God. So in other words, God is not really one, correct? God is more than one. God is actually three. Now some people say, well, no, no, God is only one. Uh, I, I want to I play another clip just to... Uh, illustrate what we're saying here it has to be it has to be three but is, is that admitted you know sometimes people will uh, will inadvertently admit what they really believe even though they don't want to say it because it sounds wrong no trinitarian is going to say three gods but i want you to listen to these clips carefully see what you conclude here's here's another one so is there one god or three no i believe that when the bible says one god it's talking about the three persons so, you want, should I play that one again? So, is there one God or three? No, I believe that when the Bible says one God, it's talking about the three persons. So, is there one God or three? According to what's being said, there are actually three gods. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is the teaching of three, God, three gods. It's called tritheism, actually. Three divine beings, three individuals who are each God in his own right. They're not related to each other. One is not the source of the other, and one does not precede the other. They're all self-existent. That is the notion of three gods. And you can call them one God all you like, but inadvertently you will admit that it is really three. And this is sadly what is expressed as the God that's being worshipped. Uh, Here's another, another clip. Let's see what this one says. So we believe they are unique individual persons. They are all, they have no beginning, no end. They're eternal. They're perfectly united while they do have different roles, um, that they all compose God and they have personhood. And so um, they're self-existent. And th we believe this is the one God that we love and worship. Okay, so you see the, the admission there? All three, and all three are God. And we have one God or three, and then all three are referred to as one God. This is the one God that we worship. And this one God that, that is, sorry? And he calls them they. And he calls, yes, they. And among those is this nameless God that has snuck in, in there. A, a, another third identity that's not the Father or the Son. Someone who has no name, who just goes by a title and gets equal credit and worship with the Father and the Son. That's a very dangerous thing, brothers and sisters. That's why we're talking about what we're talking about. That's why we're sharing what we're sharing. That's why when you know about the name of God and understand what we discussed today, it straight away helps you see the problem and you clearly identify. We don't want to be worshipers of a nameless God. That's a dangerous thing, an anonymous God. That's what the Athenians worshiped. They had a, a statue or, or a monument for the unknown God and Paul very cleverly used that to introduce them to the God who can be known so one final uh, clip I want to share before we close amazingly enough one of the key arguments again that is used to promote this one God who's actually three is the argument of creation and you'll be, you'll be familiar with that I want to play this clip I want you, want you to see what you think or what you make of that and here it is 
Now you see the plurality of God often in the creation. God says when he's creating, God said in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image. Okay, so let us make man in our image. And this is proof that God is not just one. God is how many? Three. But he made how many? Two. So the Trinity requires you to believe that two equals three. One equals three and two equals three. That's, that's the Trinity mathematics for you. Problems. How many did God create? Adam and Eve or how many? Two. So the original must be two, not three. Father and son. And interesting enough, God created them and he named them. Adam has a name. And Adam is the one who actually named Eve. But anyway, you, you understand the point. Eve, the woman was given a name. She was called Eve. Adam and Eve. They were a reflection of the father and son who also each have a name. Names are important in the Bible. Names have meaning. Names signify things. So two does not equal three. If creation proves anything, it proves that the us was God the father speaking to his son. For evidence and proof, just look at the product that was produced. When, if, I, if I say to Matthew here, let us make a model in our image, and we make two, you know that we were two speaking. That was the father speaking to his son. They made Adam and Eve. And the way they made Adam and Eve was very telling and very revealing about the father and the son. But that's, the, that's, the, that's another study. Uh, not, we, we won't get into that right now. So let's close with where we started. And uh, the verse that we, let's get rid of this here. The verse that we started with in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 4, which asks the question, what is his name and what is his son's name if you can tell? Hopefully you can tell now. You know the answer to that question. And you know that the answer is more so than just what is the sound that you make when it comes to the name of God. What is the name of God? What is his son's name? This is, brothers and sisters, this is the saving knowledge. This is what eternal life is all about. That's what the wise man is asking. When you know all these things, you might know that God is a creator and made all these things, but if, you, but if you don't know personally God's name in your life, in your experience, you really have failed of acquiring that most important knowledge. Do you have this relationship with the Father and with the Son? This is what John 17, 3 was all about. So knowing God versus knowing information about God. There are a lot of people who know a lot of information about God. Some of it true, sometimes it's not very true, but knowing information about God is not enough. It has to lead you to a knowledge of the person, the possessor, the identity and the character of God. That's what loving God is all about. We know him, yeah, sorry. He that loveth God knoweth God, for God is love. And it's for this reason that only the name of the Father and Son has been revealed. Because eternal life is to only know the Father and Son. You don't need anyone else to have eternal life. We don't need to add to that saving formula. We don't need to add anyone else to that saving formula. And say, well, someone else actually saves us and helps us and gets us to heaven. That becomes very problematic. You're adding to what God has revealed. So eternal life is to know the Father and the Son. My challenge, my prayer is that we might have that saving knowledge, brothers and sisters. Practically. We have looked at some information today, but that's to help us exercise our faith more intelligently so we can actually have the practical experience. That's where your personal decision, decision comes in, where we apply the truth in our practical life. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.